Hey church, we are going to be in John chapter 4 today. We're going to actually finish up the last few verses of John chapter 4. Two weeks ago, Nick uh, introduced us to this Samaritan woman at the well who had come out to the well to draw water in the middle of the day to avoid the crowds because of the shame that she felt um, for just the sins of her past and, and totally did not expect to encounter anyone, let alone Jesus. And so she encounters Jesus. Um, he reveals to her that he not only knows all of her baggage and all of her sins, um, but, but he, still, he still wants to have a relationship with her and he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. And so in her excitement, uh, she leaves her water jar there and, and goes back to her hometown. And so last week, um, Jeff covered that part of the story where she goes back to her hometown and she shares with the people of her hometown that she is, she's encountered the Savior of the world. And, and we learn that Jesus himself goes uh, to this, this town and he spends two days there with the people, teaching them. And because of his teaching, because of his words, uh, many more people in that town believed in him as the Savior of the world. And so today we're going to pick up the story in verse 43. We read this, that after uh, the two days, uh, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so What's happening here now is Jesus is returning uh, to the area of his hometown, the area of Nazareth, Canaan, and Capernaum, this area of Galilee. And so what's interesting, though, in these, two, in these verses we just read, there seems to be two opposing ideas here. The first one is that a prophet is without honor in his hometown, that as Jesus returns home, he shouldn't expect people to honor him, to, to acknowledge who he is, And yet in verse 45, we read that the people welcomed him. And so the first question I ask when I read this is what's going on here? First of all, why would Jesus um, return to a place where he didn't expect to receive honor, a place where he didn't expect to be received and acknowledged as the Messiah? And then in doing so, in verse 45, why did the people of his hometown, who he didn't expect to honor him, why did they welcome him? And really the clue for us is in the second part of verse 45, when we read this, that having seen all that he had done, so the miracles he had performed, in Jerusalem at the feast. So this group of people who are welcoming him to his hometown, they actually went with him to Jerusalem. So after uh, Jesus performed his first miracle in Canaan at the wedding where he, he turned water into wine, he left for Jerusalem. And so this group of people from his hometown, they went with him. And they took note of everything that he did. They were watching for his miracles, watching for the signs and the wonders. And so this group of people now have returned back with him to the area of his hometown. And they're welcoming him simply because of what he had done in Jerusalem. Because they too had gone to the feast. Now, what we're going to see is there's a significant difference between the way the Samaritans respond to Jesus and belief and the way the people of his hometown respond to Jesus in belief. And we know in, in, when he was with, among the Samaritans, he didn't perform any miracles. They simply believed because of what he said. And so now we've got a group of people who are following him around and their belief is rooted not in what he has said, but what he has done. I want to think for a minute about this idea that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. That that idea, that concept is this idea that 
the people who are most familiar with Jesus are the ones who are most likely to dishonor him. And I think that's even true in the church today. Those of us who are most familiar with Christ and his teachings, teachings can be some of the people who are most likely to, to dishonor him, to forget, to move away from a personal relationship with Christ. I actually received a text message from, from a man this week who has been a Christian for um, the better part of two decades. And, and he asked me this question about his relationship with Christ. He says, how do I go from being a fan of God and trying to live right to truly learning to love God and having a personal, passionate, daily relationship with Christ? I've been stuck in this rut for a while. Now, we might expect to hear that question from a new believer, somebody who's just become a Christian. They're asking, how do I do this? How do I, how do I become a passionate follower of Christ? But this guy's been, been following Jesus for over 20 years, and yet he finds himself in this rut where the teachings of Christ and his relationship with Christ have become so familiar that he just simply feels like a fan and doesn't at this moment feel like a devoted follower of Christ. And I think that's the difference we see here in and really, this theme is all throughout the Gospel of John. If we, if we back up two chapters uh, to Jerusalem, for example, in John 2, verse 23, we read this, that when, Jesus was, uh, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is where he was, he was being followed by this group of people, many believed in his name. That's the group of people. They were watching him. They're following him. But then we read why. When they saw the signs that he was doing, so these were people who believed in Jesus as the miracle worker. But then verse 24 of John 2 says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So Jesus knew what was going on in their heart and he knew that their belief was simply rooted in his miracles. It was not rooted in his identity as the Messiah. And evidently there's a difference here between the two. We see this in a very personal way in John 7. Uh, where Jesus is having a conversation with his, his very own brothers, his earthly brothers, the people who like, knew him the best. In John 7, verse 1, we read, um, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Uh, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So he's in the area of his hometown. He's, he's not going to Judea at this point because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then verse 2 says, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, these were his earthly brothers, they said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. But then in verse 5 we read, for not even his brothers believed in him. That sounds really strange. Wait a second. It sounds like they believe in him. They're telling him, hey, don't stay here. Like, go to Judea. Show everybody these miracles. Show everybody the works that you are doing so they'll, they'll believe in you. And then verse five says, the very people who were telling him to do this didn't truly believe in him. So what's the difference? There's a difference between believing in Jesus as the miracle worker versus believing in Jesus as the savior of the world. Now, when you think about that, Jesus performed a lot of miracles in the region of Galilee. I'll just mention a few of them that are, that are listed in the Gospels here. So Jesus, uh, in his encounter with Peter, when Peter's fishing, he provides this miraculous haul of fish in uh, by Peter. Uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He casts out 
uh, demons from a man. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals a leopard. He hears, heals a paralyzed servant of a centurion. He raised a widow's son from the dead. He calmed a storm. He cast out demons from two men at the same time. He healed another paralyzed man. He raised um, a ruler's daughter from the dead. He healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He healed two blind men. He cast out a demon from a man who was unable to speak. Uh, he, he healed a disabled man at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, he restored um, a person's hand that was withered. Uh, he walked on water. Uh, he healed a, a woman's demon-possessed daughter. And these are just mentioning a few of the signs. So he's performing a lot of miracles in this region. But, but again, we're seeing that there's a difference between um, the, believing in Jesus for what he can do, his miracles, versus believing in Jesus for who he is. And I want to note this, that among all the people who doubted Jesus in the Gospels, nobody ever doubted um, his, his miracles. What, what is doubted is his identity and his authority. He's questioned on, by what authority do you teach these things? On what authority do you say these things? On what, what authority do you perform these signs and miracles? So the question wasn't about the miracles, did they happen or not? The question is, who are you? And that's where we see the doubt. Now, we're gonna look at um, just a short story of healing here at the end of John 4 that's gonna highlight these things for us. So we'll pick this back up in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee. This is where he had turned the water into wine at the wedding, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, which is about 16 miles away, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So Jesus has returned to his hometown. Um, there was a, uh, an official, which means that he probably worked for uh, the, the king at that point in time, and, uh, and his son was, was deathly ill. And he hears that Jesus has come back to his hometown, which means he's within walking distance. And so this man sets out to find Jesus. He finds him and he says, listen, I need you to come heal my son. Now Jesus's response is interesting in verse 48 because it sounds like he's confronting the man. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But in the original language, those, the word you is actually plural. It's better translated you all. So unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. And I think what Jesus is addressing there is the, the mentality and the mindset of the people. We want you for your miracles. We aren't quite ready, though, to want you as our Messiah and our Savior. And so Jesus is confronting this issue. Now, he's going to move forward in the story, and we're going to see that um, in this particular story, this official is gonna go from coming to Jesus to, to receive a miracle to truly believing in Jesus as a savior. And so in verse 49, we read, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed, listen, the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So here's what's happening. The guy comes to Jesus. Hey, my, my, my son is deathly ill. I need you to heal him. And so Jesus confronts this cultural mindset. You guys aren't gonna believe in me. You wanna see these signs and miracles? You're not gonna, you're not gonna believe in me unless you see these signs and miracles because that's what you want from me. 
You don't want to see me as the son of God, the Messiah. And so we hear this desperate plea from this, this father, sir, please come. If you don't come, my son is going to die. Now, what's interesting is he's asking Jesus to come. Come with him. Go to his house or wherever his son is and to heal him there. And Jesus doesn't go. Instead, he tells the man to go. But he says, listen, go. Your son will live. I love these phrases in the Bible. I call them the sovereign certainty of God. When God says, here's what's going to happen. So he's not telling this guy, hey, go. I think your son might make it. He's saying what? Hey, go and be certain that your son will live. And what's interesting is that we're going to see through the story is Jesus, it first appears that Jesus isn't going to do what he asks, but what Jesus actually does is more than what he asks. So now in verse 51, let's see what happens. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So now what's happening in the story is evidently this, this guy, even though he was only you know, within walking distance of his hometown, it's the next day before he, before he gets back there. It's the, it's the seventh hour, which would have been about one o'clock in the afternoon. And on his way back, his servants are already headed out to get him. So he, they knew he left to go find Jesus, to, to bring Jesus for healing. The son is miraculously starting to get better. And so the servants leave and go f- to go find the guy to tell him, hey, hey, your son's getting better. So maybe in some way, we don't need the miracle worker anymore. And so rather than just blowing it off, like, okay, well, maybe, the, maybe his immune system has taken a, a turn for the better and he's doing better on his own, the man asks a really important question. When did he start getting better? And what's interesting is the answer is at exactly the same time that Jesus said, go your son will live. And so we're seeing this connection between Jesus's sovereign authority the day before when he says to the man, go, your son will live. And this miracle taking place in another town where Jesus isn't even present at. And, and, and this, what this guy's begging for uh, is happening. So what the guy wanted was for Jesus to come heal. And it looked like Jesus wasn't gonna do that. But what Jesus has done is actually better than that. It's more than that. So rather than waiting for Jesus to walk, Jesus just heals him on the spot right then. And so we see Jesus doing more as he does in our lives as well in response to our prayers, more than we ask. Not exactly what we ask the way we ask, but more than what we could ask for. Now, the moral of the story, what we're, let me just address what we're not after here. What we're not saying is that there is no value in the miracles of Jesus. And we're, we're not saying that we don't believe in Jesus as a miracle worker. Matter of fact, the opposite of that. Like I want you to know, like I believe in the miracles that God performs. I ask God for miracles often. Um, I, I beg God for healing. I, I pray for God to heal cancer, to, uh, to, to, to change a scenario, to, um, to change a person's heart, to save this person. I'm constantly praying for miracles in my own life and in the lives of people around me. And, and, and I hope you, as part of our church, you believe in the miracles that God can perform. But here's the difference. 
We, we, we don't go to God because of his miracles. We go to God because of who he is. And because we believe in who he is, we can't not ask for miracles, right? If we see Jesus as the son of God, the, the creator and sustainer of the universe, how can we not ask him to work miraculously in the desperate situations of our life? But that's different from going to Jesus simply for what he can do for us. I think one of the mistakes we make in, in, in Christianity is we, we separate the saving power of God from, from the miraculous work of God in other areas. And so the saving work of God happens um, at the moment of our salvation. And then we put that in a box and we set it aside. And, and so then from there forward, all we want to see is the miraculous work of God. God showing himself to me, God working in miracles. And we lose sight of that the miracles that God performs come out of his identity as the savior of the world. And it's the same power that saves us that heals the leper. The same power that, that led you to Christ and, and transformed your heart and opened your eyes and, and gave you faith that you might believe that Jesus is the Savior. That same power can also work in you to heal cancer and to heal a marriage or transform a life. And so what's the difference? What's the difference between this man and the countless others who saw Jesus as the miracle workers? I think the difference is this. This man, like the Samaritans, they believed in Jesus' word and, they, and he saw Jesus as the savior of the world. And so we see this idea of his belief emphasized not just once but twice here. The father, verse 53, knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed. And not just he himself, look at what happens, in all his household. So like the woman at the well, his belief compelled him to go tell others. His belief can, compelled him to go and to share uh, this, this encounter with the Messiah with the people he loved the most. And I think that's a good um, kind of litmus test for our faith as well. Are we just interested in what Jesus can do for us or are we so excited in our encounter with Jesus as the Messiah of the world that we just can't wait to go share him with the people around us whom we love the most? All right, so here's where we're gonna to land today with just a few questions of reflection for you to think about and maybe even discuss um, within the group that you're meeting with this morning. Uh, the first question is this. I just, wanna, just want you to think about this. As we saw in the story with this man where Jesus spoke with such certainty. Do you truly believe in the sovereign certainty of God? Like in the midst of all that we're dealing with in the culture today with the coronavirus and it's easy to allow our, our hearts to drift towards fear and anxiety. Um, but, but to begin with, like where, where is your soul rooted and anchored? Do you truly believe in the sovereign certainty of a God who is, who is king over not just the universe, but the details of our very lives, including the coronavirus outbreak and then all the difficulties that we're facing from that? And maybe the, the more important questions, the more telling questions are these. Um, think about what Jesus said in verse 42. A prophet is without honor in his hometown. Have you become so familiar with Jesus that you've began to lose your sense of awe and wonder of who he is? Like maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and, and, and maybe you realize, you know what, my relationship with Jesus has, has in some way uh, transitioned from being a devoted follower to now I'm, I'm more of just a fan following at a distance. And then this final question uh, for you to think about, am I more in love with Jesus 
or more in love with what I want Jesus to do for me. I want to pray for us now as a church, and, uh, and then uh, we've got some discussion for you as a group uh, to, to continue talking about what God may be speaking to you uh, as we open his word together today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the power of your word and how uh, not only does your word save Samaritans and uh, save desperate dads whose sons are sick, but your word saves us, and we thank you that we, as we've opened your word today, that you've spoken powerfully to us, and so now we pray, God, that you would continue that good work in us as a church, even as we're meeting um, all over the city in small groups, individually, as couples, as families, as community groups, that God, your, your word would still speak, and that your word would still move powerfully in us. Um, God, we pray for anybody who uh, is maybe listening to this who does not have a personal relationship with you um, in the same way you revealed yourself uh, to the people in the Bible that you would reveal yourself even right now to that person that they might see you as the Savior of the world and believe. We pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen.